Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders Council of the Legal Services Corporation. So I keep feeling like I'm peeling back an onion when I look at this problem. And when I wrote those multiple blog posts about this, I kept thinking, well, what's the, the first layer approach is kind of what we went right to, too, money or legal marketing. How do we get people connected? And, and in the last two years of the pandemic, one of the simple, obvious solutions, oh, more remote court more remote access. And of course, the, the knee-jerk reaction to that is, well, how do you do that if people don't have computers, likely don't have cell phones, or even if they do, they don't have good access to either broadband or even, even cellular data. So it's, it's a non-starter right there. Or you go to uh, what a lot of state commissions are doing, and rightfully so, they need to, improving uh, approved court forms and so on. Um, but all those things are resources. They're not where you get on the ground interaction, one-on-one conversations, where you find the real value in our profession. That's what being a professional is, be it a medical professional doing an examination or a legal professional doing an examination of your client, how to dig deeper into that problem. Anybody can really dissect a form and do a simple divorce if they follow the form instructions. But are they solving the many, many problems that may lay behind the scenes in that divorce? What caused the divorce? Um, what's going to be the, the, the reactions uh, after the divorce? And how does justice play many roles within that, be it from the attorney, be it from the judge, be it from um, social services and so on? Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. While listeners of this podcast may be well aware that the vast majority of low- and middle-income Americans do not have their legal needs met in a given year, they may not know that 14% of rural individuals receive assistance for their civil legal problems, a rate less than half of the national average. Today, we're going to talk about the issues that brought us to this precipice in rural America, like demographic and economic trends, and what can be done about it. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Michelle Statz is an anthropologist of law and on faculty at the University of Minnesota Medical and Law Schools. Mark Palmer is the chief counsel at the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. And Anne Hefkin is the executive director of legal services of Northwest Minnesota. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Michelle, I wanted to start off with you to do some table setting. I feel like there's always this problem that we get into when we talk about certain demographics of America, whether it's urban America, rural America, blue, red, is that we treat everything like a monolith uh, and it's just one thing. And so the question I wanted to start off with you is what are we talking about when we talk about rural America? Yeah, I think that's a really good and somewhat uncomfortable question. There are a lot of different definitions that scholars and policymakers look at, whether determined by USDA codes or metrics or looking at distance from more urban areas or the size of the community taken together, those things give us a fairly consistent understanding of rurality. But I think more broadly, in addition to being, again, relatively small communities at some distance from more urban networks and supports, we have to think about 
economic and policy marginalization of rural communities historically, and also the fact that they're just like intrinsically intersectional. So a lot of different identities and positionalities, um, you have to think about Indian country, the reality of many rural sovereign nations, the fact that immigrants, newly arrived refugees often end up in more rural communities. They're just not, at, like you said, they're not at all the monoliths that we make them up to be. And what does that look like for you and the services that you're providing? Like, what are the demographics of the folks that you serve? We serve 22 rural counties in Northwest Minnesota. It covers approximately 24,000 square miles. I will say that in some of those areas, and they overlap with um, some Indian countries, three reservations, and there's a different legal aid that serves those, but we uh, serve on the borders and, and work very closely with them. The population is not as, as expected, I guess, is what I would say, is it is predominantly white. We're in Northwest Minnesota. It is predominantly white. And what that also means is that the people of color, the new Americans that have often been settled in the Fargo-Moorhead area, I'm on the border here of North Dakota, are especially isolated um, because they are in a rural, primarily white area. And therefore the services for people who don't speak English are even harder to come by and therefore access to courts and courts even understanding or recognizing those barriers, I think are more predominant than they maybe would be in a metropolitan area. There are counties in our service area that literally have no stoplights. There are counties in our service area that have potentially one licensed attorney in the entire county. And so I think really trying to get a, a visual of what that is for folks who don't live in a rural area, I think thinking about those numbers, it's really hard unless you've driven from here to the Canadian border. I think it's, it's hard to really understand the vastness of that area. The lack of attorneys is something, Mark, that you've written about. And I was curious to kind of build on this idea of like what we're talking about when we're talking about this access to justice gap in rural America. You did this great series over a couple of years, and it blew my mind because like the first piece is bad. And I think the first piece you published in 2019 say that half of the state's counties had five or fewer newer licensed attorneys in the previous five years. And then you wrote again a couple years later in 2021 that Illinois went from 16 counties not having new attorneys to 33 counties, more than doubling in just two years time. Tell me about these 33 counties without new attorneys in the past five years and, and help me understand what's going on. I'm sure when the listeners see the headline for this podcast and, and other articles um, that include the word rule, you know, for me, I think of Illinois because that's where I'm based. I actually work and, and live out of downstate Illinois, and that's part of the problem. We very much separate Chicago with the rest of Illinois. As my examination of the disbursement of Illinois lawyers looked at year after year, including the new lawyers, and that was really the, one of the keys. The differences of what's in rural Texas versus rural Maine versus with the other two guests being in Minnesota, California, you know, it's very unique. We are a very large country. We often forget that, I think, but we think centrically about where we live uh, in our immediate proximity. And, and that's where I focus my, my examination because I had the data available to me from the Illinois Supreme Court. And also going to all the law schools that I serve constantly and hearing those in-person conversations of kind of the default setting of, well, I'm going to the big city. That's my next step so I can practice law. 
And why is that the default and how I was involved with mentoring those new students as a transition from what we say sometimes uh, backpack to briefcase. I think that's kind of antiquated now, maybe as a term of art, but um, as they enter their career, um, where are they landing and why and what are they looking to? And some of them are from, you know, areas outside metro areas, but they're going to those metros to start their careers. Why are they doing that? And is that changing and is that for a better description, getting worse in that there's fewer and fewer people going to those areas. And that's where I, I was really shocked when I first saw that data that I examined and then to see it continue. And then most recently, just this past November, November 2021, when I looked at the most available data, the most recent entering class of Illinois attorneys, it seemed to shift a little bit better and the arrow was turning the other direction, but still we have a long ways to go. I don't have the data that Mark has, which is amazing. But anecdotally, in Minnesota, that's exactly what we're seeing. The baby boomer attorneys are retiring and they are not being replaced. And they are spending years trying to sell their practices and not having new attorneys interested in moving to those areas in order to even to take an established practice. I just think it's interesting that Mark's data, I'm just backing it up with my stories of knowing retiring lawyers that I talk to all the time that wish they could sell their practice and they want to hand their clients to someone, private practice attorneys, and they just don't have anyone to hand it to. And one last point to set the stage is, is also remember a lot of these attorneys that are actually going to these remote areas to practice, those are the judges, the state's attorneys, the public defenders, and otherwise that are not considered, you know, hanging a shingle out to serve the common citizen walking in with a legal problem. So my data, I think it, there's even fewer accessibility of attorneys out there in the long run too. I totally agree. I totally agree because every county is going to have a judge and people in the criminal justice system, but on the civil side, those real critical basic needs that legal aid helps with, there's none. I wanted to jump to you, Michelle, because as Anne hints at on the civil side with this lack of attorneys that, that both Mark and Anne are, are witnessing in their states, people are going to have problems defending against eviction. They're going to have problems accessing benefits, dealing with family issues. You paint in another paper an even gloomier picture because you tie this lack of legal access to a public health concern. And so I just wanted to draw out that issue before we kind of jump into, I think, to these larger undercurrents around economics and demographic shift in, in rural America. I appreciate that you attend to that public health context. By virtue of being at a medical school, I'm sort of consistently trying to get medical professionals to think about rural legal deserts and then legal professionals to think about the health implications of there not being attorneys in rural spaces. And it's not been an easy path, I'll say, like we're fairly isolated, right, or siloed in our professional approaches. Overwhelmingly, so many legal issues like eviction, intimate partner violence concerns are intrinsically related to health and the sort of precarity that a lot of low-income individuals experience. So we see like the compounding of health needs over time in rural spaces. I know we're getting to that rural economic and policy context in a bit, but I don't think we can ignore the fact that so many treatments, whether treatments for chemical dependency, mental health services, other health services are just intrinsically not there. 
and are really out of reach for individuals. And so that in turn kind of compounds the legal side of things. And so they're just so tightly related and yet too many people aren't necessarily taking that again, like connected approach, if you will. And I, I think the term desert is really helpful to understand just the Venn diagram of policy failure that rural America is currently experiencing, because it's not just this issue that lawyers aren't moving to these areas, right? It's decades of economic disinvestment, whether that's uh, manufacturing or consolidation of agricultural, which used to be kind of the, the breadwinners of, of rural America, largely speaking. That's an issue of regulatory. It's an issue, to your point, Michelle, healthcare, it's infrastructure, especially if we're thinking about if the internet is going to be the savior in the access to justice, bridging the access to justice gap, then certainly access to broadband uh, and spotty cell phone connection is, is also an issue here. And rural America kind of just sits in the middle of all of these different deserts um, that, that can exist within the United States. I say this because it's clear that this is a bigger failure than the legal market, right? And I, I think like for a show that's about legal services, I think it's really important to, like, it's not just our fault. <laughs> like, it's just not the lawyer's issue, right? There's a lot of other trends going on here. And I'm, I'm really interested in having this conversation about understanding these limitations and these undercurrents, like, what is the legal community then capable of within these larger restraints? And the first question I have is, so above the law, the, the new site recently reported that the newest class of associate attorneys at Davis Polk will make $215,000 a year as a base salary. Uh, meanwhile, the National Association of Legal Profession reported that public attorneys make somewhere between forty-eight dollars and $58,000 around the country. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics report that in rural parts of the U.S., and this is for private attorneys, and this is places in Idaho, Arkansas, uh, et cetera, make somewhere between fifty-six dollars to $63,000 a year. So, and do we know, we've seen wage increases hit other parts of the economy uh, in the last couple of years. Should we expect any shift in these numbers that we see from NALP or the Bureau of Labor Statistics in regards to what rural attorneys are making? I can't speak to the private bar uh, other than anecdotally. Again, I have talked to private attorneys who are trying to recruit and they have put what they consider a significant salary number on there. So there was an attorney out of Roseau, Minnesota, which can't quite throw a rock and hit Canada, but it's close. It's about 30 miles from Canada. And he was offering a few years ago, a starting private attorney salary of, I, I think it was $90,000 a year, which is pretty significant. Couldn't get it filled. So I do think the market pressures will be there. On the legal aid side, Minnesota as a statewide coalition is working on salary improvement extremely hard. A year ago, we were at a starting average salary for civil legal aid attorneys at $50,000. We are by July 1, the average is going to be to 60. And in large part due to some legislative um, work and getting some money through the Minnesota legislative process, which has been great because it's necessary. And that salary improvement is necessary. And I think it, you know, we are professionals, we are lawyers, and people are coming out with student loans. The salary issue is a crisis for legal aid across the country. That said, it's not just salary, it's the things we're all talking about. It's the, the rural reality of not having professionals in the rural area. Mark, these are strong economic headwinds, to say the least, to entice people 
not only into legal aid, but into to rural communities uh, to practice law, as your research has indicated. From your research, from what you've seen, is there a way to overcome this? Or is this just a situation where we need to throw money at the problem? Well, there's a lot to answer there. Um, but if you're looking from the financial perspective of it, you know, I've always told uh, my, my law students and when I've spoken at career fairs and even when I've mentored students, I always tell them my own experience. I, you know, I practiced um, for a decade before I went into the government work and I practiced in a smaller community, a small law firm. And I always tell them I made more. I was a police officer before I went to law school. And I made more as a police officer starting salary than I did as a lawyer starting salary for a couple of years, frankly. It's a profession that uh, you have to pick and choose uh, your career goals early and your long-term strategy, of course, just like anything. But we are seeing, from what I've seen, more and more opportunities from the financial aspect, whether they be fellowships, whether they be stipends of some sort, whether they be loan forgiveness programs, there are some bells being rung on state level, and now we're seeing some, some national, um, at least some task force taking a closer look at this with, this with a specific goal in mind to address this problem that we're talking about today, which is reassuring. And I'm, I'm anxious to see where they come out on the money problem of all this equation. I think, I think it's part of it, I, but I, like you said, you relate it to a Venn diagram. I think it is an element of the entire solution, but... Um, at the end of the day, I think this is a people problem and a uh, how you solve legal legal problems problem. Um, that's what we're here talking about, access to justice. That's what I keep coming back to is that dissecting those words in and of themselves. Um, this should not be discussed as an access to resources problem. This is an access to justice problem. And if you start looking at it from that vantage point, um, your eyes start to open up a little differently, I think. Can you go a little deeper on what you mean there? So I keep feeling like I'm peeling back an onion when I look at this problem. And when I wrote those multiple blog posts about this, I kept thinking, well, what's the, the first layer approach is kind of what we went right to, too, money or legal marketing. How do we get people connected? And, and in the last two years of the pandemic, one of the simple, obvious solutions, oh, more remote court more remote access. And of course, the, the knee-jerk reaction to that is, well, how do you do that if people don't have computers, likely don't have cell phones, or even if they do, they don't have good access to either broadband or even, even cellular data. So it's, it's a non-starter right there. Or you go to uh, what a lot of state commissions are doing, and rightfully so, they need to, improving uh, approved court forms and so on. Um, but all those things are resources. They're not where you get on the ground interaction, one-on-one -on -one conversations, where you find the real value in our profession. That's what being a professional is, be it a medical professional doing an examination or a legal professional doing an examination of your client, how to dig deeper into that problem. Anybody can really dissect a form and do a simple divorce if they follow the form instructions but are they solving the many, many problems that may lay behind the scenes in that divorce? What caused the divorce? Um, what's gonna be the, the, the reactions uh, after the divorce? And how does justice play many roles within that, be it from the attorney, be it from the judge, be it from um, social services and so on? 
you're beginning to like tap on where I wanted to take the conversation next, which is what do the solutions look like, right? And you're talking about uh, kind of the limitations of, of some of these ideas, especially the technological ones. Um, and, and so let's shift the discussion there then. So there is this onion or the Venn diagram, depending on what your metaphor of choice may be to understand the, the access to justice problem in rural America. And you are doing really interesting work, kind of two of the big ideas to come out of your organization are, are both kind of these remote kiosks uh, to overcome the digital divide, this lack of connectivity that Mark was just talking about. And as well, I, th I think it's called the Justice Bus, if I remember correctly. Can you tell us about um, these two programs and how they came about? Yeah, in the late spring, early summer of 2020, when courts went to 100% Zoom court, as we call them, virtual court, Zoom, whatever technology you want to use, we've, Zoom court's a nice shorthand for it. We recognize as a legal aid community in Minnesota that there was a digital divide. All court was being done virtually. And our clients, particularly in rural areas, but not exclusively, did not have access to the technology, did not have the broadband, could not appear in court. Um, appearing by phone is not as good. Those of you listening to the podcast, we are all looking at each other right now, and it is a huge advantage to see the people who are speaking. Even though you can't see us, we look great. Um, so what we did is we got some CARES funding through the state of Minnesota and developed the Reach Justice Project. And as you mentioned, Jason, it has two initiatives. One is a fleet of mobile legal aid clinics, as we're calling justice buses, and they are able to travel to any point in a service area or where clients need them. And they are fully equipped with technology, bringing lawyers to the people, right? So they are a mobile legal clinic um, and they provide access points. The other aspect of Reach Justice is the legal kiosk project. And across the state of Minnesota, there are approximately 275 legal kiosks. They are technology access points that allow individuals to go to community partners, to legal aid offices, to libraries, to a shopping mall, all of the locations that these 275 legal kiosks are located in to have technology access, an access point to courts, to lawyers. Um, frankly, they've also been used for those other issues that we've talked about. Telehealth, people have used them for, for their mental health counselors that are 150 miles away. People have used them for job interviews. They have really been a great access point and they are in locations where there are not staffed legal aid offices. And frankly, oftentimes as we just talked about, there aren't even lawyers. Um, there just aren't lawyers in the whole county they're providing that access in a way to try and bridge the, the terminology we use is bridging that digital vibe because the reality is Zoom court is not going away. Um, in addition, housing courts in large parts of rural Minnesota are being calendared across multiple counties. An entire judicial district is doing eviction calendars via Zoom court. Clients can attend then through a legal kiosk if they don't have their own technology. But in addition, legal aid lawyers can go to every single one of those hearings and be present for every single one of those hearings. And as much as Zoom court and the pandemic has had some real downsides, not gonna argue that, the ability for legal aid lawyers in Northern Minnesota to go to every single eviction court across 27 
thousand, twenty-four thousand square miles on my side of the state. Northeast program is twenty-seven thousand square miles. Fifty-one thousand square miles of space in northern Minnesota. We're now attending nearly every eviction action in northern Minnesota, and and that is a huge, huge benefit to our clients. And so that seems to be one way that the the kind of this digital divide has been overcome. But Michelle, you wrote this uh, great article that was published by Georgetown recently uh, with a couple of colleagues around where the limitations to these types of programs can be. Uh, and I was curious, you know, depending on you can respond to what Anne's talking about, or if there were other programs in the paper that you want to draw out of where kind of this disconnect is with access to justice solutions and the rural communities that you're researching. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, I think I'd bring a slightly different perspective to the conversation. I'm not law trained. I've been conducting research across northern Minnesota and, and northern Wisconsin since 2017 and actually started even before that in about 2014. But what that means is that I've conducted hundreds of one on one interviews with all of the different stakeholders, right? So public interest and private attorneys, tribal and state court judges health professionals, community leaders, and I would say most important, low-income rural individuals of, like I said earlier, so many diverse backgrounds and positionalities. And then in addition to that, we've conducted hundreds of individual and household surveys, trying to assess legal needs and individuals' own definitions of legal needs, and more importantly, I think, of access and justice. So I'm listening to talk around access points, and hearing just such important reflections on, on what those can be and what justice looks like and how I think we could probably agree on this conversation that there's really no substitute for direct representation. But in the meantime, what can we do to address all of these like intersecting deserts, right? Professional shortages, educational shortages, healthcare shortages, and so on and so forth. And so, I really honor the work that's being done, but I also see it from the other side, which is that if you're a low, in, low income rural community member who might have precarious employment, limited childcare options, inconsistent transportation or no public transportation, then many of the sort of prevailing access to justice, quote unquote, solutions are not accessible at best, and at least in my data, are often experienced as really humiliating by individuals who just lack the technological literacy, who might lack the legal literacy, and who just really need that connection with trusted community members to either proactively or in the moment address, um, like you said, Mark, what are often complex and multiple justiciable needs, right? There's so much that one of those self-help court forms just cannot elicit around the complexities of a case. And a lot of the other kind of prevailing or really celebrated access to justice initiatives don't necessarily attend to sort of the nuances of how individuals experience legal crises and then try to seek the services that feel most relevant to them. I don't disagree that in an ideal world, if everyone had a face-to-face in-person lawyer 
that would be a utopia. <laughs> we are so far from that, as we've discussed. Transportation, childcare, all of those barriers are absolutely an issue. Sometimes the ability to attend court from your own house eliminates those barriers, right? So there's, it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. Just this week on Monday morning at 8.30 a.m., we got a call from a client who called hysterical because she had an eviction in 45 minutes. And normally we'd say to her, get in your car and go to court right now. <laughs> you know, you will be evicted if you don't show up. She was able to come to our office. So she at least had transportation to our office. A staff member was able to get her onto a legal kiosk. She was able to, who was able to, I think, again, a warm handoff of that tech issue, because you're right, you can't just hand someone technology and expect them to understand them. We need that connection to help make sure people can access that technology that's there. She was able to attend eviction court. Someone was able to say, this is the judge, here's what's gonna happen. And a legal aid lawyer was able to attend remotely and be with her in court. So while I don't disagree, self-help forms in and of itself aren't great, I think that we're really excited about having a potential um, tool in the toolbox. It's not the only tool. Lawyers are still a really important tool and lawyers using the kiosk or lawyers being in court remotely is still a great tool. But so I think we're just I'm sort of saying yes, but on all of those things. My sense from this conversation is both the problem and the solution is very much a patchwork of, of various issues that we need to be uh, cognizant of. At least that's what I'm taking away from, from this part of the discussion. Going back and beginning to wrap up, today's show, thinking about these economic issues, thinking about how uh, rural America is getting demographically older than the rest of the United States. It, it's less economically well off. There's been this divestment that we've talked about. It's, so it's left the situation where like demand isn't strong enough to support supply. This is like what Mark was talking about or, or Anne, when this handoff from boomer lawyers to uh, Gen X or, or millennial lawyer, lawyers, that isn't happening because it's not seeming as economically viable. Mark's research indicates that everyone's going to Chicagoland as opposed to, to downstate Illinois. Are we in a situation where access to justice, whatever the solution is, whether it's attorneys, whether it's technical, whether it's a mix of them, needs to be treated as a public good, as opposed to seeking out a market solution? Because based on this conversation, it seems as if it's pretty safe to say the market has failed large swaths of the United States. And this is a uh, audio medium, but I will note that everyone is nodding yes uh, right now on, on the Zoom call. And I don't know who wants to take a stab at this question first. It is, it is a big one, but I, I open it up to, to you all to, to respond to that idea. You're talking to a civil legal aid attorney who left big law um, 18 years ago. So yes, I, of course, you know, you, you've got a kept audience here and we agree. Um, and how to make it something that is seen as so critical, um, the resources are put towards solving the issue. I think Michelle talked about it, and I think those social determinants of health and legal care as a social determinant of health is a really interesting um, idea. I think people are starting to recognize medical care as a necessary good and a necessary basic human need, and civil legal services is also, I think, a basic human need because it provides people with safety, secure housing, and stable basic income. So absolutely, I think it is essential. Michelle, I'll, I'll shift the question a little bit to you. Is like, then what's the coalition need to look like to get to 
um, this, the, the solution that you would like to see happen in this space? So I was just recently invited to write an afterword for this volume that's coming out. It's an international book on rural access to justice. And one of the contributors wrote solutions that are not prescriptive, but reflective of community needs and local expertise. So I'm totally stealing that line um, to say that I think the solution needs to include all the sorts of people who are already at the table, who are you know, in the field of policy, in law, practicing, but also again, bringing in those other sorts of professional partners, as well as the individuals who really have their pulse on community needs. So in my work, that often looks like librarians, educators are a big one, and, and, and really those trusted individuals within a community, whether they're working in the field of housing, whether they're indigenous elders, I think that the solutions are already out there. They just tend to be sort of embedded in communities and, and really are being efforted and enacted by community champions, right? Those individuals who have the trust of community members and who really understand the, the full scope of need. The word community is, is repeated a lot by Michelle, appropriately so. That's what keeps coming in my mind along with professionalism. You know, I, I come from the Commission on Professionalism and it does circle back to, uh, this is a, a professional issue, just like when you make that dedication in Illinois, you raise your hand and you make a professionalism pledge when you enter law school in all nine law schools in Illinois. And then of course, when you're sworn in as a lawyer, you, you, you do a separate pledge, including to defend your constitution. That turns back on the community you serve. And that goes much beyond marketing, monetary questions and so forth. That comes in serving your fellow person, your neighbor, your community and being a leader. Um, I think that's where the conversation hopefully will go in many respects. I'm very curious to see what the LSC's uh, Rural Justice Task Force comes up with. It was just initiated at the end of last year, 2021. They have a lot of voices to hear from. And I think a multidisciplinary approach is absolutely a must. And we see that across more and more industries. And that's not gonna go away as, as the world continues to flatten. The legal profession is slow to change, let's be honest. And uh, this is one of the ways we need to step up and look to other ideas and how to serve all of our people, be it in the big cities and be it on the farms and beyond. And that multidisciplinary approach is gonna leave us with a lot of threads to pull on, I think for future episodes and future conversations in which I hope you'll be able to come back and join us for those in the future. With that, I'd like to thank Mark, Michelle, and Anne for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed today, please check out our show notes. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché. For everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.